You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm really well. How are you doing? I feel rested today. I got enough energy to actually do some exercise this morning, so that only gives me more energy, which is very, very exciting moving forward. Trying Good to, for you. Trying, trying to stay active, you know? Yeah, and I'm going the other way. Um, I got hurt while I was running, so I've had to slow down that. And I broke my toe on uh, Monday. So now I can't do much of anything. I've been told to, to lay low for three weeks. And you know what? It takes me, it'll take six months to get back into shape what I'm going to lose in the three. I can just foresee it all coming down the pike. But I'm glad you're exercising. It makes me feel good. And it's been such a beautiful summer too, right? We can do so many things. It so has been. Things. Yeah, very thankful for that. Lots of bad things going on, but so many things to be thankful for, for sure. Very true. Today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in, but please do follow us on our social sites where we give you updates on our shows, upcoming guests, and some tips and tricks around integrative health and nutrition. And we are at the Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Um, Alex, I wanted to ask you, is the email working just yet? Just in case people have been trying to get through. Yes, at this point, it, it, should be, it should be working, yes. Perfect. So if you have tried to get through to us and haven't succeeded, retry again, or you can message us on, um, on the social sites as well, either way. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, my new website, which is kathybiasse.com. Same address, new look. Um, I wanted to talk, speaking of exercise, and this has just fallen in beautifully, Alex, um, I wanted to talk, I was just scrolling down here, and perfect, perfect segue. I wanted to talk about foam rolling. This is uh, something that I am trying to do more regularly, and I know my son does it every day before he starts his exercising for his back and his legs, and it is a great and simple, sometimes painful addition to your workout and your health. Foam rolling, uh, if you don't know what a foam roller is, it's, I don't know, three feet long maybe. Uh, mine is blue. You can get them with uh, texture or smooth. 
And what you do is you lie down, and there's lots of YouTube videos and, and, and exercises and techniques to help you to do this. I'm not going into all that right now, but the benefits of foam rolling are many. They help to alleviate soreness. So if you have done a workout and you're maybe uh, day two and you're still sore, uh, foam rolling helps to alleviate that soreness. It helps to reduce inflammation that occurs when your muscles are repairing. So when you exercise, if you recall, your muscle fibers break down and then they repair. And sometimes this can uh, lead to a little bit of stiffness and soreness. So foam rolling really helps to alleviate that and to help with um, the muscle repair. <clears throat> and it helps um, injury prevention. So when you are foam rolling, you're actually maintaining the muscle length and you're also reducing tension and tightness. So if you're tight, if you're stiff and you go to do something like a stretch or a lunge, you know, you can be setting yourself up for maybe a bit of injury. So this helps really to um, lengthen the muscle and it helps to prevent these injuries. And it also helps to increase blood flow, your tone of muscle. It helps to make your joints uh, feel better and more loose. And if you recall in our conversations with Dr. Antonio Stecca, the, um, the fascia, which is just below your skin that helps with uh, your motility, it covers everything in your body. It's like that saran wrap. It helps with uh, fascia mobility as well. So, also, would it, would it be beneficial to utilize it as a cool down process after your workout? Typically, you, soon? Yes, you scoop yeah. me. It's 100% good for, for yeah. <laughs> No, no, that's great. <laughs> it is great for after workout too. Um, it, and it's very relaxing. And after, honestly, after you're working out and using it, it's not as painful as next day. One of the, the most painful points for me um, as, as a runner is the IT band, which is along the outside, for me personally, is, which is along the outsides of your legs. Um, I used to have knee problems and I still have some, but I had really painful knees and painful hips and um, some wise sod told me to try foam rolling. So I got a foam roller and it nearly sent me through the roof the first time I tried to do my IT band. But as I continued to do it, um, it definitely helped with my joints. It really was a great addition for me, really helped me a lot. So when you're doing it after and you're already warmed up, um, it can it can really help with day two recovery, but it's really relaxing too. It's not as painful and it's, it's really relaxing. So absolutely do it after your workout. My son goes down there um, before he starts and he rolls his back. He, well, he doesn't roll his back. He rolls the foam roller along the back and, and right. all over. So really great. And as I said, there are smooth foam rollers and, and these are definitely a good intro into using them because the textured ones are, they can be a little bit more um, painful. So even have two different types if you want. Um, the, the smooth one is less intense, um, but it's, it's, you know, if you can get into that textured one, it really gets into those areas that, um, that need attending to. So great addition to your, your workouts, to, um, you know, to stretching, all that stuff. So I just thought I'd, I'd let you know about that and the benefits of it. And I think you can probably, well, definitely online, you pick them up. Um, I think that um, they're made with uh, polyethylene foam. 
um, what did I write down here? There may be polyethylene foam, which is softer, and can warp over time, or an EVA foam that tends to be denser and more durable. So I do not have a particular brand name that I'm recommending, but definitely do your research and um, a very inexpensive way to, to add more to your health. So on to today's show. Our guest today is Dr. Winifred Mack, and she is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at UT Health Austin's Women Health Institute. She specializes in understanding oocyte and early embryo biology to help patients facing infertility issues and recurrent pregnancy loss. In addition, Dr. Mack is an assistant professor at the Dell Medical School Department of Women's Health. We're going to be talking mainly about um, miscarriages. This is something that is, is, can be very traumatic for a couple, and uh, Dr. Mack is, is doing some great research into helping couples to reduce risk of miscarriages. And who's at risk is one of the, the, the topics that we'll be talking about, as well as are there treatments currently available to reduce the risk of miscarriage? And does delaying childbirth put one at higher risk for miscarriages. So these are, are some of the things that we will be talking about when we start our discussion and continue our discussion with Dr. Mack right after this break. Fly until one fly on 
Are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As a reminder, please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC in all three locations. And unfortunately, as the to- show is being taped today, no opportunity for calling in. Dr. Mapp, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us how you got into this area of specialization uh, with fertility and miscarriages. It's a very unique um, a niche to be in within the health field. Sure. Um, so, so really, it, uh, it stems really a long time ago um, when I did my PhD um, in looking at uh, placenta, and so pregnancy placenta has, has been something I've been really passionate about since a long time ago. And uh, then I uh, became a reproductive endocrinology, endocrinology and infertility specialist, um, where I deal with infertility and um, recurrent miscarriage patients. <clears throat> And so really my, my clinical interests um, really stems from when I um, was a faculty at Yale a few, a few years back, and I was the director of the Recurrent Pregnancy Loss Center at Yale. And so that's really when um, bringing together my clinical interests and my research interests really sort of came together. And I think the, the main reason is that 50% of couples with recurrent pregnancy loss um, do not find the answer to why they have a pregnancy loss or why their, their, um, their pregnancies um, did not go on to um, uh, become a baby. And so there is a lot of, um, well, there's a, a huge gap of knowledge. Um, and for me, as a physician scientist, that was um, a really... A vast area um, to really delve into and with my um, pre-existing interest in how the placenta works, early embryogenesis, it made sense for me to really see patients who have recurrent pregnancy loss and to continue to do research in this area. Mm-hmm. And how, how many of... Is there a statistic as to how many pregnancies end up in a miscarriage? Sure. Um, so 
So there are about, in the US, um, about um, up to 20% of couples can have a miscarriage. And so that equates to about 75,000 to 100,000 a year. Um, recurrent uh, pregnancy loss is um, less uh, common. Um, and recurrent pregnancy loss is defined as having two miscarriages. Um, and so about 5% of couples will have, um, unfortunately, two miscarriages. And then um, the couples who have more than two, such as three miscarriages, we're talking about one to 2% of couples will have um, uh, more than two miscarriages. Are, are generally miscarriages with the first child or are you seeing miscarriages um, if you're having two or three children, does it happen haphazardly within the children sequence? So that's a great question. Um, so we divide it into two categories. So there's the primary recurrent pregnancy loss couple where they've never had a baby. Um, and then we have the secondary uh, recurrent pregnancy loss couples who have had um, babies before and now they are experiencing um, miscarriage after miscarriage. And um, the, the second category where they've had a baby before is very age dependent as well. As women are delaying um, childbearing, um, we're getting older. And really biologically, um, if we're over 35, we're just at more at risk of having miscarriages. Um, so obviously if you're trying to have a second baby at age 38, 39, you are just at risk of having a, you know, a miscarriage. Um, due to there's something wrong with the baby, such as chromosomal um, abnormalities. Um, so it, it, there, are, there are couples who have never had a baby and who are much younger, and then, they have, and then we have a cohort of women who have had babies um, and then maybe starting later in life. Um, so that's one cohort. And then the, we do have um, a cohort where they just – had babies and now we don't know why they're having recurrent miscarriage. Um, does it, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, all these questions are coming to, to mind. Is it true that if you have, or is it wives tale? If you have your first baby within say prime, the prime age of reproduction, that likely you won't have miscarriages or is each and every pregnancy different? I, you know, I've heard over and over again, as long as you have that first baby and you get those pipes working, the rest <laughs> will be fine. Is that a misconception? Um, so I think that um, the research has, has went when they've looked at couples, um, definitely the, you're more likely to have more miscarriages if you've had two or more. So, so that is, we know from just looking at um, sort of the demographics of the couples who have recurrent pregnancy loss, um, they, the more miscarriages you have, the more likely your next um, pregnancy will end with, in a miscarriage. Um, there's always also been studies where, so a history of having one miscarriage does put you at risk. So I, I guess when you talk about sort of having one baby, um, does that save you? Um, obviously, it's, it's less likely if you've had a live birth that you will, you will have another miscarriage, uh, have a miscarriage. Um, but it really depends, 
each pregnancy is different. So there's no uh, fast rule like, oh, you've had a baby that you won't go on to have a miscarriage. But it seems that we definitely know that if you have a history of miscarriages, you are more likely to have miscarriages. Um, but just having one baby doesn't necessarily, you know, make you sort of, you know, immune to having another, uh, having a miscarriage. It's interesting. Now, I, I, before I get lost in all the other questions that are running through my mind, you talked about an interest in the placenta. Now, is your interest in the research in the placenta, you said it's taking you into this miscarriage uh, field of study. I'm guessing that there's a connection between the two in some cases. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So um, there may be various different reasons um, why uh, couples may be miscarrying, but the placenta is so important um, to provide the nutrition to the pregnancy. And so um, there definitely is evidence um, about 50% of miscarriages will have abnormal placentas. And so definitely that is a large cause of potential of why miscarriages are happening. Um, obviously, then the other part is if the there's something wrong with the baby. Um, and that's obviously another area that um, we can test by doing genetic testing. Um, but there are definitely um, growing evidence that we need to do more uh, detailed genetic analysis, like single genes rather than the whole chromosomes. Um, and then um, there are other reasons. Also, there might be something uh, wrong with the, the mother's uh, endometrium, like the lining of the uterus. Um, and so, and then also, we, we shouldn't forget the fathers. Um, mm -hmm. There is definitely um, increasing um, evidence that the guy has a, a place in this. So there's, there's some um, studies that show that um, this, if there's uh, abnormal uh, looking sperm, um, in the semen analysis that could be related to recurrent pregnancy loss or if there is um, DNA damage if, of the sperm that could also be related to recurrent pregnancy loss. So it is multifactorial, um, but the, the placenta is very important in sustaining a pregnancy. Have you noticed common threads though? Although it's multifactorial, um, have you been able to drill down into common threads that are running through a majority of miscarriages? So um, we know um, there are several known causes of uh, recurrent miscarriage. And so um, we can definitely do diagnostic workup. So 50% so of couples, we said, we don't know, but then the other 50%, there may be a reason. And so um, the, the known causes are if the mom or the dad have abnormal chromosomes themselves, then they will produce um, eggs and sperm, which have abnormal chromosomes that will lead to having a baby with abnormal chromosomes that will be lost. Um, so this is one reason. Um, there, if you have um, uh, underactive thyroid, severe sort of underactive thyroid hypothyroidism, that could be also a cause. Um, women who have hypothyroidism may also have thyroid antibodies, um, and so it could be an autoimmune issue. Um, and then uh, other things are if you have diabetes, that could lead to recurrent miscarriages. Um, and then one other known um, 
causes uh, a condition called antiphospholipid and uh, antiphospholipid syndrome, um, where uh, we do blood tests to um, see if women have um, antiphospholipids, um, and the treatment for that is to give aspirin and heparin. Um, so those, uh, and then um, ex there's also conditions of the uterus, such as a, a septum in the uterus. Um, if they have a large fibroid in the uterus, those can be surgically managed. Um, and so those are kind of the known things that we know that can cause recurrent miscarriages. And then we do testing for all those things. And um, after we've done all those things and we don't have that everything is normal, then we label the couple as being unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss. So that's about 50% of couples. Where does aging come into this and the use of birth control? Because as a society, I mean, I think that women are waiting a little bit longer to have their children. And um, maybe with regards to that, you can go just surface wise onto the anatomy and, and eggs that the women has, just so we, we get a, a bit of understanding of how these things can, can play together. Sure. So, um, what women need to know is that we are born with a finite number of eggs. So um, once we're born, we have X million um, birth sites. So these are potential eggs. And basically, um, when we get our first period, we start to ovulate and we um, start to recruit um, these potential eggs to be one will become ovulated. So um, throughout our reproductive uh, lifespan, this um, transition from the potential eggs to the ones that are ovulated, that, that is a continuous process. So we are using up um, every month um, you know, uh, X amount of eggs because that's just the natural cycle. So as we age, the number of eggs that we have will decrease. And also the quality of our eggs will decrease. And so um, as uh, we, as a society, as we're delaying childbearing, um, we're basically, uh, so more and more women are having infertility issues because it's just an age related. It's not that there's something wrong with them. It's just that the biological clock is catching up. And, um, you know, infertility um, nowadays is, a lot of times is really age related. We're, we're having couples coming in their late thirties, um, you know, you know, trying to have babies and it's just becoming more difficult because it's just part of nature's way to say, Hey, you know, your egg supply is going down and, and the quality of your eggs are not as good. And it's just natural that fertility go um, decreases. And I usually counsel patients that really fertility starts decreasing at age 35 and really by age 37, it does sharply decrease. And so, you know, we, that should figure into sort of our reproductive sort of planning. If, if we desire five kids and we're starting at age 35, then that's going to be tough to have mm -hmm. the five kids. Um, so I think education is so important um, in this process for women just to know um, about their bodies and, and what is just a natural process um, 
that is happening to us. Um, and then speaking of birth control, so going on the birth control does not prevent your eggs being used up. And that's a common question that, that I do get. It's like, oh, I've been on birth control, so therefore I'm not ovulating, so I'm not using up my eggs. Unfortunately, um, the sort of transition of those, those um, potential eggs into getting ovulated, yes, they won't get ovulated, but that train still continues. Those eggs are still being moved along but they just don't get ovulated, they just die in the ovary. So that train we can't stop, unfortunately. There is no medication that we can give a woman to stop the decrease in number of eggs. Interesting, and, and I'm assuming that uh, the men's cycle lasts a bit longer. For sure, um, so men's fertility um, probably um, starts decreasing more in the sort of age 50 onwards, so they, they have a little longer um, uh, time. Yep. I think that I I just wanted to state that for the cause because I'm sure that everybody kind of knew that. What I want to do is take a quick break right here now. And then when we come back, we'll continue along this fascinating discussion with Dr. Mack. Great. Thank you. Drifting away, they're losing the fight for another day. The life that she's known is falling apart. A fatherless home, a child's broken heart. You're holding her hand, you're straining for words, you're trying to of it all She's desperate for hope Darkness clouding her view She's looking to you Just love her like Jesus Carry her to Him His yoke is easy His burden is light You don't need the answers To all of life's questions just know that he loves her Stay by her side Love her like Jesus Love her like Jesus The gifts lie in wait In a room painted blue a little blessing from To all of life 
Listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great conversation here with Dr. Mack about miscarriages and infertility and how they're connected. Dr. Mack, I'm wondering in your research, are you find is there a, a real difference in causation depending upon where in the term of pregnancy the miscarriage happens? So, um, so basically. Um, what we've seen is that um, a lot of times recurrent miscarriage um, or recurrent pregnancy loss couples, they do tend to um, lose pregnancy around the same gestational age. So for instance, they may lose pregnancies very early on at at five weeks um, and every pregnancy seems to stop at that time um, versus some may be later. So there definitely seems to be, per couple, there seems to be um, a similar pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that this could speak to maybe there is um, a genetic cause um, that is, there's some abnormal gene that's being, you know, that's crucial, that is carried by one of the parents um, that is, is causing this. So... Um, I, I've just uh, we've just submitted a, a great a big grant to the NIH to really study this question about the genetic um, uh, predictors of uh, pregnancy loss. So so definitely, I think looking more deeply into um, the genetic causes, such as single gene mutations, um, is definitely going to be a very fruitful area. Um, that the NIH is very interested in because um, there is so uh, such a big gap in our knowledge. So um, yeah, we we're, we're very hopeful that we will will be um, doing that soon, um, and maybe get, well hopefully get funded to do that research. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and my other um, area of interest, as I said, was placenta. So there's the genetics. So there's like changes in DNA. And then there's something called epigenetics, which are not changes in the DNA code, but things that can uh, change the gene ex uh, expression of genes. And this could be um, uh, causative for uh, pregnancy loss as well. So, so um, I'm, I've just been um, awarded a research grant from the American Society of uh, Reproductive Medicine to do a pilot study to actually um, derive um, uh, stem cells. Um, so these are placental stem cells from um, couples who have, have had miscarriages so that we have a really good uh, way to study the biology and to look at um, these epigenetic changes um, in the uh, miscarriage tissue. So it really opens up um, a very powerful tool to study why a miscarriage happened. Um, obviously, um, we're focusing on the placenta, so it's it probably will be of the 50% of the unknown, probably 50% of those will be related to placenta. So this will allow us to really have a, a, a great tool and, and so have more cells because um, stem cells are able to um, proliferate in cell culture forever. And so it will be an unlimited supply of um, placental um, tissue to study the issues that may have led to the miscarriage. Fascinating. Now, when it comes to the epigenetics of, of gene expression and within the scope of, of miscarriages, is there something or some things or lifestyle practices that couples can initiate you know, pre-pregnancy, during the pregnancy to perhaps reduce risk of miscarriage? Sure. I, I think that, yeah, so um, epigenetics it can be environmentally driven. And so um, there, there are definitely, um, we know from studying miscarriages, is that um, couples, uh, men and women, who are um, overweight um, can have an increased risk in miscarriages. And it can affect egg and sperm. Um, quality. So um, the, we know that it can also affect epigenetics. Um, so definitely keeping a healthy weight is, is, is important. Other things are smoking. Um, we know that smoking, uh, uh, couples who smoke or mainly the woman who smokes can have an increased risk in miscarriage. So that definitely um, uh, cut out any smoking. Um, and uh, other things are obviously alcohol intake. Um, we know that um, ideally, um, even in couples who are trying to get pregnant, uh, there's been studies that shown um, couples who are doing IVF that if a couple is having more than four alcoholic beverages a week, that that has a decrease in likelihood of having um, a success in IVF. And that's and, couples. That's the male and the yeah, female. Yeah, man and woman. Yes, yes. They they looked at the man and the woman separately, and then they looked at them together, and it, it was definitely separately and together, <laughs> um, in all combinations. Um, so definitely, I tell couples, you know, limit 
to less than three alcoholic beverages. And really in women, you know, there's definitely research that if you're trying to get pregnant, ideally just cut out all alcohol because you don't know when you're going to get pregnant. So if you are, you know, uh, you don't know and you're you're drinking more than three alcoholic or even one alcoholic beverage, um, we don't know if that will have long-term consequences. So I think, you know, I think the most conservative would be just say, hey, if you're trying to conceive, just let's limit alcohol intake. Um, so, so those are kind of the, the big, you know, sort of factors, risk factors. Obviously, keeping a healthy diet is always great. Um, and I think, you know, in, well, especially now in COVID times, I and mean, there's a lot of stress and anxiety, then, you know, just trying to um, be sort of uh, do some stress relieving sort of um, uh, exercises is a good thing. Um, we know that. Um, stress is not related to miscarriages unless it's sort of so severe, like in the famine times. So, you know, that's another common question that we get is, oh, do you think it's because I have a stressful life or I have a stressful job? And I usually say no, but, you know, obviously in general, just having miscarriages is stressful. And um, so, so it's kind of a, it's a circular like well yes I have stress maybe it's because I've had miscarriages or I'm trying to get pregnant and so I think finding ways to um, minimize stress is always good um, but I don't I don't think it's the reason why um, couples are not getting pregnant or or having miscarriages but I think in general just healthy living healthy mind is so important when it comes to miscarriages, when would you recommend uh, a couple go for, say, pre-diagnostic testing? And I, I'm thinking about, um, you know, if there has been a line of miscarriages, you know, mom or grandma has had miscarriages, or does that play into um, the discussion at all? Yes, I always ask my couples if either side of the family, if they have a family history of recurrent pregnancy loss or infertility, um, because, uh, for instance, if there is a, um, a a strong family history, like, oh, my mom had like five miscarriages before she had me, then that way uh, that may sort of suggest to me that maybe there's some chromosomal issues going on there, um, because um, uh, so when I say chromosomal issues is that I'm talking about sort of translocations of chromosomes. So a piece of a chromosome has um, moved onto another chromosomes, like they swapped material. And so um, the person who has it may be totally fine because they have all the, all the, the genetic material they need, but it's just in the wrong place. So when you're making eggs and sperm, the, the um, eggs and sperm may have uh, abnormal pieces, like an extra piece of one chromosome versus, or maybe a lack of something. So that will play out in having pregnancy losses. So I think, um, yeah, eliciting of if there's a strong family history is, is important. Um, and then if, if there is this history and you feel that uh, more needs to be done, what testing are you recommending and are there are there treatments available or is the testing just for information only um so if 
if we're talking about um, chromosomal issues, then um, a blood test on mom and dad, on, on the couple, um, to look at their chromosomes is a pretty standard, um, it's called a carrier type. Um, so that will let us know if there's um, abnormal, um, or uh, sort of um, the, we, it will be able to show us if there is a translocation or an inversion of the, of the, chrom uh, of the chromosomes. And so that's pretty diagnostic. And then what you can do about that. So I've had um, various couples who've um, who've had the either the woman or the man has the translocation, and um, they go on to do IVF with um, pre-implantation genetic testing. So um, basically, um, the embryos that are produced through IVF can be genetically tested before we put the embryo back into the uterus, and so we can screen for. Um, the abnormal abnormalities of the chromosomes and pick the one that is the same as the parent who carries it so that we know that it will end in a live birth. So I definitely have had various couples who have, have had three, four miscarriages and they are now happily have a baby from, from this. So you're manipulating either the sperm or the egg and, and pulling out what potentially could be harmful? No, so we actually make embryos, um, oh. and then we biopsy the placent the placental cells, the outside cells of the embryo, and then we check the chromosomes of those cells. Interesting. Now, is there ever a situation have you come across in your research and working with couples where you have recommended uh, for a couple not to move ahead with their plans for pregnancy? I have not yet. Okay. Um, I have not yet had um, told a couple that you know you should not do you know continue um, because from the from previous literature, um, even couples that have six or more losses have about a fifty to six percent chance of having a live birth. Um, so. It's just how many miscarriages are they willing to go through before they get to that ongoing pregnancy. Um, so I have, I, in my practice so far, I have not had told a, a couple say, hey, you should go adopt or you know, do, do donor um, egg or sperm yet. Good. That's very good for people to know. Now, the question that I have then with regarding the multiple uh, miscarriages, does this impact mom's health at all not, not not out of the mental scope but does this sure. impact physiologically her health right right sort of um having the miscarriages or you mean sort of long term like if you have recurrent miscarriages yes. you may be at risk of other things yes or yes just the multiple scenario okay um i mean from a health point of view going through miscarriages um it depends on whether you opt for um, conservative management, if um, so, that's you just pass everything yourself. Um, medical management is when you take tablets to bring on um, the sort of emptying of the uterus, or if you go for surgical management, where you're actually taking tissue out in, in a surgery called a DNC. So the surgical management, there is a risk to, um, the more DNCs a woman has, the more increased risk that may, there may be scarring of the uterus. 
And it really depends on the patient's uterus because I've had patients who had had one DNC and have uterine scarring. And then I have others who've had multiple DNCs and no scarring. So, but it is a, it is a theoretical risk that the more um, surgical management you have, the more likely you're, you may have scarring of the, the uterus. Oh, interesting. So if people wanted to find out, uh, are you, so you're still working in clinic, are you doing any virtual uh, visits or is it all within your area that you are seeing patients? So right now um, we're, we have a large, um, well, we've moved to, to telemedicine. Um, so I, I do definitely see patients um, uh, through telemedicine right now. Um, as um, COVID-19 sort of maybe stabilizes, then um, we may be cutting down. But I think having the option to have telemedicine and now we have the capabilities is, is great for out-of-town um, patients who obviously are not going <laughs> to travel, you know, you know, just for one appointment. So I think that um, definitely I think having covid um, put in an infrastructure to do telemedicine will probably help a lot of couples who who may not necessarily be able to see an expert in recurrent pregnancy loss in their local town. So I'm hoping that, um, yeah, definitely if I can help any couples out there um, who are not in Austin um, uh, or in Texas, then um, I would love to, you know, help as many couples as I can. Well, how many practitioners in this specific field uh, generally are there? I mean, you really were the first one that I've heard of. I, it's just not, a, I guess, unless you're in and you're looking for the specialty, of course, you know, you're searching for the knowledge, but are there mm -hmm. many practitioners that are doing what you're doing? So, so all reproductive endocrinology and infertility um, specialists um, are trained to do, um, take care of patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. However, what I would say is that there is probably a handful of us who really want to actually make that their sort of main sort of practice because we all do infertility and, you know, we do everything. But um, I've made an effort to really focus um, as much as 50% of my practice in taking care of recurrent pregnancy loss patients. And why I say, um, I think you have to be someone who's vested um, because um, these couples take, uh, you know, you have to support them through their pregnancy. So what we offer is basically the full diagnostic workup. And I have obviously, because I, I've been reading the research, I offer other things that are not part of the standard diagnostic workup that others may not want, are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then once we do the workup, I take them, I take care of them during the, um, their next pregnancy. And we we're very hands-on. Um, we will do weekly ultrasounds, um, uh, from, from six weeks onwards until, um, we pass their time of loss. And we also have a, um, sort of social work, um, component where our couples can have, um, therapy sessions, because obviously we want to treat the whole person. So I think we're unique in that respect, that I have a, a great interest in taking care of these patients. We have, you know, not just me, we have a multidisciplinary team, um, you know, who can take care of the, the emotional side of things, because I think that's so important to have everything. 
Um, and then I have a very strong interest in the research. So I'm hoping obviously to recruit my patients into studies and, and really move the field along. So I think there definitely are other people and I, and you know, off the top of my head, I think maybe we have like about 10 other physicians across the US who are dedicated um, to, to recurrent pregnancy loss. They do other things too, but like their, their, their major passion is, is this. Excellent. I have one other question. I, I've been meaning to ask it through and I don't want to end without asking this. Is there a more common um, period within a pregnancy that miscarriages take place? And the reason I'm saying that is I often hear that people won't tell about their pregnancy for the first three months mm -hmm. uh, in case there's, there's an issue. Sure. Is it true that most miscarriages happen within the first three months of pregnancy? Yes. So okay. that is... Um, yeah, most commonly it's going to be in the first 12 weeks. Um, and um, after 12 weeks to 20 weeks um, is definitely less frequent. Um, so, so yeah, so m most of really most of my patients will probably lose their pregnancies between six to 10 weeks is kind of most of sort of the recurrent pregnancy loss okay. um, patients. And do moms need to be careful during this time? or live life and, you, you know. You mean during COVID times? Or? No, during, during the first three months of pregnancy. Oh. Are, do you recommend, you know, in, in a, in a non-risk, I guess I would say, in a non-risk pregnancy, um, would you say that if, if a mom finds out that she's pregnant, that she should alter the way she's living, assuming a healthy life, like slow down, be more mindful, or just, sure. you know, live, live through? Um, obviously, um, no alcohol no smoking. Um, th those would be sort of, um, must do's. Um, and yeah, just, just healthy living. You can still exercise. You know, um, I usually tell my pregnant patients don't get your heart rate above 120, but you can still continue with the exercise. Um, swimming is great. So, so just, you know, sort of, and, and, you know, because of a lot of morning sickness, you know, patients may not feel the greatest anyway. So they moder modify their own activities as well mm -hmm. as, as, as they can tolerate. So the body does wonderful things, right? Yes. It forces a, it's amazing. <laughs> right. it, yeah. I never thought of it that way. Maybe morning sickness is a way to slow people down or right. slow us down. Excellent. Right, exactly. What a fascinating conversation. Where can people uh, get a hold of you or find out more information about your research? Sure. So um, I, I, we have a website, um, UT Health Austin is where I practice. And that is um, where uh, you can just click on the Women's Health Institute and you'll be able to go through to the early pregnancy program. Um, that, so that's my clinical site. And I do have my own personal um, Instagram, Facebook. It's called Miscarriage MD. And um, I started that maybe last year. And I do put posts on sort of research on uh, recurrent pregnancy loss and really to educate um, patients about more evidence-based sort of studies because there's a lot of stuff on the internet that is not necessarily an MD-led um, website. And I, I really wanted, my main goal was to help um, couples with educating them on what is uh, actually sort of research-based and, and vetted versus things that are 
are not necessary. Uh, they're more sort of maybe it, it could be a cause. So I, I should, I post about once a month. So, um, so yeah, so that you can find me there too. Wonderful. Thank you for a great conversation. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. No, thank you for inviting me. And I, I hope that this will help, um, you know, educate as many couples as possible. I'm sure it will. Thank you so much. And everybody will talk to you next week on the health hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.